Well, you might have had the privilege to witness mm, physical births, the beauty of a child coming into the world, and life, new life, out of nothing. Yet, friends, there's something far more beautiful and miraculous than a natural birth in the moment when a person, when a sinner comes to life spiritually through the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, being spiritually born again. There was a minister uh, who was part of this uh, great, great cathedral, and he was preaching from the words of our text, John 3, 7. You must be born again. And as he was preaching, he said, you may be a member of a church, you may be a clergyman, even a deacon or a bishop, but you must be born again. Later on, that minister received a letter saying, minister, you found me out. I was, I am that clergyman. For over 30 years, I've been serving as a pastor and I was not born again. Never knew anything of the joy of which Christians speak of. Never known anything of this new birth until I was feeling all the wretchedness and miserable nature that I have. Unable to sleep all night. Then I opened the word of God. I bowed on my knees. I saw myself as a poor lost sinner. And I called on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I placed my trust in him. And from that moment, everything was changed. That is the miracle of the new birth. And that is the same call that comes to us in the words of our text. You must be born again. John 3, chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. We continue our journey through the gospel of John. If you were there last Sunday, we saw Jesus cleansing the temple in chapter 2. Which is almost preparatory to, to this moment where we come to the mountain peak. And the central theme of the gospel of John of conversion. The theme for us today is wrapped up in the word of being born again. What theologians call regeneration. That coming to life. The full initiation to conversion. The starting point which takes place in an instant. And takes place even before you actually put your trust in Christ. You see, it's a new beginning, a rebirth, a renewal or a recreation of your spiritual life. You see, we all were born in sin. All of us come into this world with a spiritually fallen, dead nature. And God has to regenerate us. Through the Holy Spirit coming into your spirit. And it's a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit as we shall see. And the fruit of this regeneration is that your life, your heart changes drastically. And it is all because of the grace of God, not because of anything in us. It's a supernatural 
in, within you, but also it's invisible, yet the effect of this regeneration are visible for all to see. And it's something permanent. And it's something, according to our text, that is essential to salvation. That your entrance to heaven depend on this inner transformation in your soul. That to be born again is essential and foundational part of your Christian life. Without it, the whole building collapses. You must be born again. And that new birth leads to the beginning of a new life. That is now radically renewed and changed. Before you were born again, you had no disposition or desires for the things of God. In fact, you were rebelling and going into the opposite way. But now God plants a new desire in your hearts for God. And we saw already last time in verses, the end of 23, the 22 and 23, 21, where Jesus had already told us that there is a way in which you approach God, you have a type of faith that the many crowds were believing in Jesus that was inadequate, if you remember last time. Because Jesus knew the inner state of every man. And now we come to chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man, which becomes almost the, this entire dialogue an example of this faith based on miracles. Oh, Jesus, we know you are come from God because none, none can do the works you do. But it is not accompanied by a radical renewal of the heart. It is not accompanied by regeneration, by being born again. This uh, dialogue between these two men, Jesus and Nicodemus, seeks to address the problem of a superficial faith in Jesus. It seeks to show you the, 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 the fact that Jesus knows what is inside man. He knows all things because he's God. And this dialogue turns then into a monologue. As John records for us the words of Jesus over salvation. The most famous verses in the Bible, John 3.16, right? So this text is full of double meanings. Three times John introduces comments to the text and we have this Nicodemus this Pharisee who is representing for us the problem with the prevailing misunderstanding among the Jewish people over what is the nature of true spirituality we don't know the end of a story we don't know if Nicodemus actually was born again or he just remained sympathetic toward Jesus the text does not save for us at times, in fact, during the Protestant Reformation, people were called Nicodemites to signify the fact that they were sympathizing with the Reformation. But before, because they were afraid of persecution from the Catholic Church, they did not openly profess their faith. That's Nicodemus. However, in chapter 7, verse 50, we find Nicodemus trying to defend Jesus in the Sanhedrin. In chapter 19, 39, we find him bringing spices to the burial of Jesus. 
So whatever we say about him, it definitely, this conversation he had with uh, Jesus definitely made an impression on his soul. And so it should have an impression on you and me this morning. That friends, without the Spirit enlightening your darkness, you are unable to believe the good news. And what is the good news for us? John 3.16, that God's love has been displayed for us in the death of Christ so that we may be saved from the eternal condemnation that awaits every single man and woman on this earth. But you need the Spirit to enlighten your darkness. Otherwise you are unable even to believe this good news, friend. You must be born again. So this morning I want to look with you, uh, bear with me because it's going to be a uh, lot of things. This is very crucial for us, okay? This is foundational. We're going to see the obligation of the new birth. We're going to see the or origin of the new birth, which is the Holy Spirit. We're going to see the object of the new birth, which is uh, Jesus Christ, the serpent lifted up. And then we're going to look at some obstacles to the new birth in rationalizing, in your unbelief. Let us start now with the obligation of the new birth. You must be born again. Verses 1, 2, 3. That without the new birth, without this regeneration I'm telling you about, you have no spiritual sight. Verse 1 introduces us to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. You could say he's a top professional bishop in the established religion. And he comes to Jesus, verse 1 says, by night. Some render this under the covet or night. To mean that he was coming in secret. He feared the Jewish leaders and he didn't, many of the Jews did not confess Jesus openly because they were afraid of what it entailed in terms of persecution. What would the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish uh, council, say about this? Therefore, here already in the beginning of the, the ministry of Jesus, the hostility toward Jesus has already been uh, growing to the point that these guiding theologians of the time felt that to be publicly associated with Jesus meant a loss of respectability. And so here's a religious priest who comes by night by secret to Jesus. Now Jesus could have closed the door, but his door is open even at night, at all hours, with all sort of peoples, as we shall see in coming weeks. He's willing to engage and talk. And Nicodemus starts this conversation with Jesus in a very respectful manner. He's a, a rabbi. He, we know that you're a teacher come from God. It's almost flattering, you could say. But he says, no one can do the miracles that you do unless God is with him. That these miracles are evidence that God's power is with this Jesus. This is the only possible explanation, right? Now in verse 3, here comes the, the answer of Jesus. You could think, okay, this is a good enough profession of faith. Jesus pats um, Nicodemus on the back and the two of them move and depart from their ways. Instead, 
There is a higher spiritual miracle that needs to happen in the heart of Nicodemus. That Jesus does dismiss this advance from Nicodemus. Yes, he's saying right things about me, about Jesus. But his words do not go to the heart of the matter. And he says to him in verse 3, Most are surely, and anytime you have that word, there's, it means that there's no other way around what Jesus is about to say. Almost as trying to wake this man up from his lethargy, so that the truth that he has to say to him may sank deep into his ears. And what is the truth? Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless. This is a must an absolute necessary requirement, and it has no exception whatsoever. Even you, great religious teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Ten, seven times our text has this theme of new birth. It means again, there's this double meaning in Jesus, because in one sense, born again means born twice, but it also means born from above. Pointing to the fact that this birth originates in heaven. And it is not something physical that originates in us. It comes through the Holy Spirit. Just like we sang a few minutes ago. That your whole nature must, must be renewed. And therefore, this new birth is a metaphor that Jesus is using. To point to the beginning of a true conversion. Uh, the gracious new nature, new disposition that God has to place in your heart for you to be able to grasp who Jesus is. Spiritual life. You cannot see the kingdom of God without this new birth. You cannot be mentally able to perceive it. You cannot spiritually experience it. You cannot salvifically be born again. You can't see the kingdom of God, let alone enter into the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. You cannot submit to such kingdom without this work of regeneration. So that all your religious claims for all of your life, for 20, 30 years you've been... A, a, a religious leader in the temple amount to nothing unless you are born again. Thomas Adams once says, Repentance is a change of the mind. Regeneration is a change of the man. And it points to the fact that you can recite through things about the Bible. All you want. But if you're not born again, you're still blind to the reality of the kingdom of God in your heart. Sometimes it's good for our God to stop us right there and shake us from our spiritual blindness. That is exactly what's happening here. That there's something of far greater importance than you going to Jesus and says, Oh Jesus, I like you. Oh yes, you are, your, your, your miracles are true. I want to follow you. And Jesus is saying, Look, you don't know what you're talking about. You have no clue what you're talking about. I'm not asking you if you have a high regard for Jesus. I'm not asking you to seek to live a moral life. The question boils down to this. Are you born again? Born again. You cannot fix your old man on your own terms. This change has to be real in your life. 
These words that Jesus is saying must be written in your heart, not in a table of stones. Conversion. It's more important than joining a church. It's more important than even wanting to be a, a, a religious leader like Nicodemus. We must ascertain that our heart and will and character has been changed through this drastic being born again. So that your mind becomes subdued. Otherwise the gospel, friend, makes no sense. It falls on deaf ears. The faith in outward things like Nicodemus was probably placing his trust. Like, oh, you're from God because of the miracles you do. To be attracted to Jesus without an open commitment, it is vain. It is fleeting, friend. Especially for people who have been religious all their lives like Nicodemus. Who think they grew up in the church. They don't remember any new birth. They got baptized. So they assume that's enough. To make you a believer. But friends, Jesus is clear here. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. We, we, we must warn people that this is far more important. That their, their soul are well with God. And we need to consider the multitude of so-called Christians around us. Who are deceived, self-deceived on this very point. Because even if you claim that Jesus exists and comes from God, just like Nicodemus did, it does not grant you salvation. You can know and even affirm right things about Jesus, but that's not enough. You need a complete, radical, new change. And that change is not just a private, subjective, mystical, one-point experience that doesn't... Uh, impact you at all it, it, it flows into a lively faith and fruits that now God his word prayer his church become the number one priority in your life you hunger and thirst for the things of God that's what means to love God with all your heart strength mind that's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself but again, as we see here, all of this still depends on the will of God. That God ultimately is the one that has to do it. That we cannot achieve it on our own. That, uh, that, that being born again is not a human striving. That we do not dispose ourselves or cooperate in any way with the Spirit. We don't decide to regenerate ourselves. God regenerates us even before we we ever will. And even that faith in Christ is only because He enables you to believe. So that God gets the glory. Let's go to, therefore, the second point of our text. Not just the, again, the, the beginning of, of that obligation of the new birth. Now we come to the origin of the new birth, which is the Holy Spirit. Verses 4 through 8. Nicodemus hears this and he's confused. And uh, by his answer, he shows us that he has a flat-out misunderstanding of... Because he's taking this new birth literally. He's not understanding what Jesus is referring to. And so in verse 4, he says, How can a man be born? Can he go back to the womb? Can he? But Jesus, again, repeats his urgency. Most assuredly, verse 6. Nicodemus, you are not listening to what I'm saying to you. 
unless one is born of water and of the Spirit. That is telling you that of water and the Spirit is the source of this new birth. Therefore, the origin of the new birth is something transcendent. Water points here to the life-giving symbol of the moral cleansing that uh, Jewish people already in Isaiah 44 or Ezekiel 37 knew that this needs to point to the washing of the conscience. Nicodemus should have known. But it also, this water refers to the waters of baptism. The, the, the signifying of the beginning of a new life in baptism, as we see in Romans 6. Ultimately, baptism, however, of the Spirit and regeneration at the moment of your conversion is what this water points to. Unlike what, you know, some denominations say, regeneration and baptism must be coming together. And baptism doesn't produce regeneration. It only testifies to the fact that you have been born again. Okay? And so we're, we don't, we're not like the Church of Christ, the Presbyterians, or the Lutherans, or the, or the Catholics. Yes, they are together, but only because when coupled with regeneration, baptism indeed carries the truth of what regeneration had just happened. It is expressing... Is not the cause. The cause is the spirit. And so you know that that is that is the thing. When you we want to get baptized, you want to make sure that this is true of you, that there is this new birth, this regeneration in your heart. Otherwise, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's what our text is. And Jesus, even to reiterate this point, says that is which born of the flesh is flesh. That, that, that which is earthly, temporary, weak, and mortal remains mortal. Remains something that cannot accomplish this. Remember what we saw in weeks ago in chapter 1 verse 13. That it is not by the will of the flesh that we are born of God. Remember that? That our works, our physical parents, our physical life cannot reproduce this kind of spiritual new birth. It's an entirely different realm. Now it doesn't mean that everything now physical becomes evil necessarily. But this spiritual new birth originates in the spirit, in God, in the Holy Spirit. And you cannot produce it on your own strength. Do not marvel, Jesus says in verse 7 to Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus was marveling. He was astonished by this statement. You must be born again through the Spirit. That the Spirit has this invisible and yet tangible way of transforming your life when you come to Jesus Christ through this new birth. And so Jesus, to make his point clear, compares this to the wind. And in the original text, the word for wind in verse 7 is the same word for the Spirit. So there's a play on word. They were probably at night and the wind was blowing. And Jesus says to make his point that the wind, just like the wind blows where he wishes through a unilateral and sovereign action that is invisible. You cannot see it, but you see the effect of the wind in the same way regeneration and the work of the spirit in someone's life does the same thing. You don't know where it comes from, where it goes from. 
you don't know where, who, who will receive this spirit. You cannot control it. So it is with anyone who is born of the spirit. So you, cannot, you can try to make sense of conversion all you want as you try to catch the wind by your hands. But unless the Spirit baptizes you, when you come to Jesus Christ in this regeneration, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot. Friends, the new birth is a mystery. But it's a reality. It is an invisible yet visible. Ex you, you experience it. Just like there are mysteries in nature, like the wind, there are mysteries in the God, grace of God. And you cannot excuse by saying, I don't get it, just like Nicodemus. You cannot in pride seek to be wise beyond what you can grasp and try to make sense of things like Nicodemus. All you need to realize is that this needs to be a reality in your life to actually enter the kingdom of God. You cannot manipulate it. You cannot reach it with your mental capacity alone. That would be carnal. And friends, you may have, have the best parents. Your earthly father or mother or grandma might have been a saint. But friends, you are still born in sin. We all need this new birth. And you cannot understand any of this unless it is imparted to you through the Holy Spirit sovereignly. Not because of anything in you and me, but ultimately because of God's purpose, which is beyond me and you. You may hear the voice of the Spirit, but you don't understand why. It's up to God. How do we determine if one is born again? Thomas Adams says, As in generation, so in regeneration, we must be growing up to our full stature. There are many who claim to be born again. There are many. But if your life is no different than an unbeliever, I'm sorry, but this is not a real regeneration. Because when God comes, it is evident by faith in the Bible, that you defend the Bible, that you repent, that you have real change in your life. Down to the nitty-gritty of how you deal with your sin. The way you use your time, money, your life ambitions, your priorities, your prayer life, your interest in God, your love for the church, your joy in worship, your hunger for the Word of God. You may not be able to put your finger on this new birth, but you know when a person is born again. There was this uh, minister, Sinclair Ferguson. He tells of a young man who came to his church and uh, for sat under the word of God, but he was not converted. Until all of a sudden, he, he, he goes to, 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 to the minister and says, everything is changing. The singing is so sweet. The preaching is so exciting. And this church has changed so much in a few weeks. And Ferguson looked at him, young man, nothing is changing in the singing. Nothing is changing in the scripture. Nothing is changing the, in the, the preaching. Everything has changed in your heart. That you now are born again. You see that? So now let's look at the third point. The obligation of the new birth. The origin of the new birth in the Holy Spirit. But what is the object of the new birth? See, new birth and regeneration is not something floppy up in the sky and mystical. And It has an object. It has a direction. It has, 
yeah, faith, but faith in a person. And that object is Jesus Christ, the Son, the Son of Man. Jesus answered Nicodemus in verse 13. That the object of this new birth is faith and trust in Jesus Christ. As the unique Son of God who descends from heaven and He will go back to heaven through the cross. That is the gospel. This is actually a comment that John adds to the conversation. As Jesus says, just like the Son of Man ascends and descends, He is telling you that this is His ministry. That Jesus, we saw it already in previous week, this Jacob ladder. Or like a, if I am the narrator in a story, I know how the story is going to end. I know everything about the story as a whole. And that is Jesus Christ. He comes from God. He is the gateway to understand these heavenly things. And it is to Him that you have to go to understand the meaning of these things. And to make his point clear, he goes in verse 14 and 15 to an Old Testament parallel. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. This ascending analogy. You know the story in Numbers 21 verses 5 and nine, to 9. Israel was in the wilderness. And they had been complaining about how hard it was. And they had been rebelling. And so God sends a punishment through snakes who are biting the people. And these uh, snakes cause them to die. So now Moses finds a solution. God tells him to lift up a snake on a pole for the salvation of Israel that had been beaten by snakes. And all that Israel needed to do is to look at the snake... Lifted on a pole, and they will be healed from their poison that was causing their death. And now Jesus tells you that just like that happened at the time, that was only meant to be a type, an example of what the Son of Man, who comes from God, and He now must be lifted up in His death on the cross. And that everyone who are truly part of His people and are regenerated by the Spirit look at the cross and what Christ has done for them and their poison of sin is destroyed and they're healed. Spiritually, come back to life. So that everyone who believes in this Death on the cross that I will accomplish shall not die, but have eternal life. The serpent in bruising Christ got a bruise in his own head, said once Elisha Coles. Isn't that interesting? That the same instrument that brought sin into the world, a snake, and brought the poison of sin into our life is now taken and Jesus Christ heals us from that curse through the cross. Complete victory over your sin. That salvation is possible by faith. Created by the Spirit as we saw. But all that it takes is to look at Jesus on the cross. And to see Jesus lifted up. And to look up on the crucified Son of God. That you expectantly look 
and trust upon the one that was cursed for your transgression. That you are healed by his wounds from the deadly poison of sin that has entered into your life since birth. And by so doing, you obtain eternal life right now. You see why Christ died on the cross? You understand and you are saved. Yes, you still go to the grave. But you go now with a gateway to heaven. You go expectantly knowing that eternal life is already at work in your heart. Because you look to the one who was lifted up on the cross. And without, without such faith, friends, the poison of sin... The serpent, the ancient serpent Satan will kill us and send us to hell forever. That is what everyone, every single human being is destined to. Except the solution of Christ being lifted up. Who ascends to heaven passing through the cross. That necessary step from the moment that he was made flesh we saw in cha chapter 1. Through his death and resurrection all the way back to the glory of heaven Already Jesus is prophesying to Nicodemus that this is the way that we're going back to God. He has been to heaven. He can tell us all about heaven. We should not look anywhere else. We should not be puzzled by other things. And the second object obviously is faith in the Son of God. Verse 16 the ultimate answer to the issue of Nicodemus is this. The most famous verse in the Bible. John 3.16 That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This love for the world. Later John will tell us, do not love the world. So what he, here John is pointing to is to Jews and Gentiles scattered throughout all the world. Those stars from heaven that we saw this morning in Abraham. That are innumerable multitude from all tribes and nations. Not every single individual, but people from all over the world. Who are in a desperate lost state. That are unloving and, un and unlovely. That's what we are. We're sinful. We're rebellious against God. And yet God loves them. Rescues them. Not just by His words, but through Himself taking the place of us. To satisfy the eternal justice that requires the death of the sinner on a tree. Cursed is everyone who is hanged upon the tree. The father was willing to deliver his own beloved son. The begotten that we saw weeks ago. The one and only. The unique son. For you and me. That is how much he loved us. That he gave his son. Just like Abraham gave up Isaac. The son of the promise. On the altar. That is how much God the father loved us. By giving up his only son to temptation to suffering to death to pay the punishment for our sins on the cross the cruel cross so that each one anyone that whosoever obviously not everyone in the world has faith so this refers to those in the world who will believe 
And it's only by faith again. It is not because of their good works. It's not because they're good enough. It, 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 just believe. Just look at the Son. Acknowledging that He indeed died. But also submitting to such truth. And wholly relying on the fact that this is true for me. That He died for me on that cross. And you trust Him like a parachute. And so you do not perish. But you have eternal, everlasting life. And I'm telling you, if you have placed your trust in Christ, this is already true of you. That you, have, you are already enjoying eternal life. That God will send you, not to hell where you deserve to go, but to the everlasting life. You await His coming. In verse 17, the most merciful and undeserved offer it's given. That God did not send His Son to condemn or judge the world. But to save through Him. Now this, it's what actually would be fair. Okay? What actually would be fair for us is to be wiped out in an instant. Because we have offended the Holy God. That negative sentence upon us as being guilty, rebellious, and liable to punishment because of our sin would be fair, completely fair for God to do that for every single one of us. And just because it says, did not send the Son to condemn, it doesn't mean that now the, so, there is a suspension of all judgment in God because John 9.39 says, Jesus came for judgment into this world. And also the following verse, verse 18, we'll see that there's still a condemnation going. But the, the point here is that He has come to give mercy. That now He has opened His mercy. The second time He will come, He will judge the living and the dead. So He's giving us a second chance. And remember also the last week we saw he cleansed the temple. So it, this is not a suspension of judgment. But it's the opportunity so that you may be rescued from the destruction that awaits you. To fix actual problems in your life is not physical problem. But it's the spiritual death and destruction and hell and judgment. Does that, the whole world get saved in the end? No, it doesn't. So it refers to those who embrace this by faith. And through the sovereign agency of the Holy Spirit as we saw. And that leads to verse 21. That you practice the truth. You come to the light. So that your, your deeds are seen that have been done in the sight of God. That now judgment is a done deal. It's, it's over. You are no longer under judgment. But as we shall see, if you fail to believe... You are under God's wrath. But there is still time in the mercy of God to believe. But remember that the unbelief has to be dealt with. Either at the cross or in hell. Into eternity. And so you can talk about faith all you want. But unless you repent of your darkness. Believe the Father loved you by lifting His Son on the cross. For your eternal salvation. If that is not true of you, you're still under His righteous condemnation. This is the gospel, friends, summarized for us. 
John 3.16, that the infinite love and redemption of God is in action there. God sends His Son to love me and you, to die on the cross for my sin and yours. It's not so that He can give and take, and it's not just selfishly, but it's really giving everything He had, His Son, to save us, to the point of sacrifice, to the point of death. He gave His very life in the face of our sin. Can you imagine that? That while you were still a sinner, Jesus Christ died for you. That Christ accepted your punishment. That here already, in the beginning, He knows where this is leading. And He does so obediently. His love has no boundary. That every corner of the earth will receive this message of salvation. And experience the love of God. That the Father really loved us if He was willing to crush His own Son to redeem you and me. That sins we did offending His holiness are covered by His mercy. Because He does not want that anyone perish. So don't run from His love. That if you believe in Christ, you truly find His life. And, and you love in return for the one who loved you first. But friends, this makes sense only if you receive it by faith. If you are cold and unfeeling toward the one who loves us so much, what would you say? Suppose if a judge gives a free pardon to a criminal, to a murderer, which actually is all of us. We have transgressed the law of God. We have offended His holiness. And what would it be to despise such pardon? To trample upon it. And despise the messenger. Would, what would happen to that man? To perish. Friends, me and you are criminals. We have crucified the Son of God. And our damnation is sure. If we refuse to hear the call of the gospel of salvation. That we must embrace His love by faith. And introduce the love of the Father into our life. That He really loved us. And that's exactly what happens. When you are truly born again. The love of the Father overflows in your life. And heaven gates now. It's open friends. Only through the key of faith. Trusting. Not through your merits. Not through something worthy within you. And so my encouragement to you is to stop looking at yourself. To find this solution. Then look at the one who was given for your salvation. And you say, oh, he can love other people, but he cannot love me. You don't know how much I sinned. Friend, you, you were loved while you were still in sin. Do you realize that? That while you were still a sinner, he died. Because he loved you. The Father loved you. One thing is to know those things. Another is to agree with those things and trust them completely. Implying that you leave behind also, as we shall see in our last point, the dark and evil and deadly ignorance for the light of the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. And you practice the truth as we saw. That God creates a heart to seek that light and to find that light in Christ. And so let us conclude looking at some obstacles to this new birth. We looked at the origin of the new birth. We look at the object of the new birth. We look at the obligation of the new birth but there's also some obstacles to this new birth and 
at the end of our text, all the way to verse 20, but also in verses 9 to 12. The first obstacle, 9 to 12, seems to be in Nicodemus, a rationalizing of, a, 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 a relying on your own reason alone. He, he asks in, 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 in verse 9, how can these things be? I mean, you lost me there, Jesus. How is that even possible? Nicodemus still does not get it. As uh, none of the rulers of this age understood, says 1 Corinthians 2.8. And in verse 10, is, uh, Jesus almost ironically says, You who are the teacher of Israel still do not understand these things. You don't know. You're, you, you have all this Old Testament knowledge. You're a respected and famous theologian. And with all your learning, you still don't get it. Nicodemus. Jesus says to him, We speak, verse 12, and testify of things. We are eyewitness of things. But none of you, religious leaders, receive this witness. Nicodemus and all the Pharisees. We, we look at the word from past weeks. That we, people were procrastinating faith. They were coming up with all sorts of questions and objections to Jesus, right? They challenged Jesus' authority. And Jesus contrasts this attitude of Nicodemus with the blatant reality of his spiritual blindness. And he tells them in verse 12, I spoke to you of earthly things and you did not believe. How will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? We've been talking about tangible earthly miracles, analogies about water and wind, but you fail to grasp them. How are you going to believe if I talk to you about the new birth, about me ascending and descending as the Son of Man, of this Holy Spirit coming into your heart, my direct knowledge from the Father? How are you going to, if you don't embrace regeneration, where do I begin talking to me, being God in the flesh as we saw church? chapter 1 and all the other inner secrets that Jesus gives us if you didn't make it to step 1 how are we going to go through step 2 the outcome will be the same what would, it, what would it be the point that is the problem of religion without Christ why 1 Corinthians 2 once again tells us verse 14 the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. Doesn't make sense. Why? Neither can he know them. Because they are spiritually discerned. And that is the very thing that Nicodemus doesn't have. When you have a trend of skepticism. It is a downhill course. When you rely on your, your reason to make sense of these heavenly things. You don't realize that your reason is corrupted, that your own judgment is corrupted, that you are self-deceived, that you are blind spiritually, and you need the Lord to open your eyes. It reminds me of that uh, little portrait of a fundamentalist in the 1900 who speaks of the descent of liberalism, okay? And you have these ladders of people going down the ladder, and they give up Christian truths one after the other. First, they give up the fact that the Bible is not infallible. They give up miracles. They give up the virgin birth. They give up the deity of Christ. They give up the atonement. They give up the resurrection until they come to the bottom of despair in atheism, in complete meaningless, and they are completely blind because they're relying on their reason and they're remaining in their unbelief. Verse 18, the second part. 
Just if you thought that verse 17 meant a complete absence of judgment, which is a perversion of the law of God. Look at this verse right after, verse 18. He who does not believe is condemned already. Yes, I did not come to condemn the world, but if you stay in unbelief now, you are unsaved, you are under God's condemnation already. In preparation of the last judgment before the throne groom of God, in the holy God, the perfect God, and your sentence is already there. The wrath of God is already on your forehead because you fail to believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And verse 19 tells us, this is the condemnation. This is the grounding for this judgment. And it will be a discriminating judgment between the sheep and the goats. That the light came into the world, but man loved darkness. Nicodemus, remember, he came by night. And he is here face to face with the light of the world. And he's still in darkness. He's ignorant of those things. But light, as we saw in previous weeks, also refers to the moral perfection of God. And the, the sadness that the majority of the entire humanity is still in the domain of darkness and evil and corruption is still an enmity with God. Especially even religious people like Nicodemus who appear to be righteous, but there's no righteousness within who claim to be believing God, but reject God when He visits them in Jesus Christ. And what is the reason there? Verse 19, Men love darkness because their deeds were evil. That is the sad tragedy that the root of unbelief is unrepented sin. William Jenkins was a Puritan once says, Unbelief is the shield of every sin. It's... People coming to you and say, oh, I, I don't believe in God because of this. Or you're like, have you seen, you know, uh, you know, scientific evidence? They're like, yeah, you're just shielding your sin. I know what's happening here. The reason criminals like to hide their face is not because they don't like their physiognomy. It's because they have a bad conscience. They know they are stealing and so they hide it. Friends, the root of all sins is unbelief. That your way of life makes you remain in unbelief, hinders true faith. That's why faith and repentance and salvation must go hand in hand. In verse 20, he makes practice of evil. The issue here is not the fact that you might sin from time to time. The issue is when your life is characterized by a lifestyle of hypocrisy that brings you to hate the light. You hate it. You don't want to come to the light. Lest your deeds are exposed. And so friends, you can try to rationalize and speculate over theology all you want. But unless you accept what God's word said about your sin. And you believe in the solution provided by the gospel. You're still under his righteous condemnation. Like everyone else in this earth. That is the sentence of Jesus. I'm telling you, religion cannot... Do what the light of the world provides in Jesus Christ. And I know that's specifically true in our context. That we live in a religious culture. When you think you're good enough and respectable on the outside. And you're part of a club. And that is a huge trap. Even in the south. There's plenty of churchgoers who cannot recollect this new birth. 
Even if they do say that they're born again, they, their life doesn't show. And Jesus doesn't care how much theology you know. Degrees or years of service, pages after pages that you have read about Christianity, even if you are a minister. Think of John Wesley. He came to Georgia, here in the South, as a minister. And he was not converted. He was not converted. Complimenting Jesus is not the point. This boasting about reason, you remain ignorant of the most important thing. Whether people see you as a religious person is totally irrelevant in the eyes of God. And if what I'm preaching to you it still leaves you puzzled, it still looks like an unresolved riddle, we got some problem here. And I'll be happy to talk with you afterwards. To make it even to step one of the school of Christ to be saved. To become a new man, a new woman. There's no point in dealing with these other theological topics or this or that doctrine. You are on the spotlight now. The gospel has come to you. What to do? The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. This is Romans 13. There's no such a thing as probation, friends. We are already under God's condemnation. The sentence is clear. You hear the gospel. If you reject the call of the gospel to believe, it places you under condemnation. In the extent and degree you understand the gospel and you dislike it, you avoid it, you reject it, or you remain apathetic toward it, you should make you tremble, friend. It should make you tremble. If you say, oh, I'm not saved, I'm just wanting and waiting to experience this, this thing. Friends, that's a dangerous spot. Because if you continue to doubt and you continue to say, okay, this life is all I got. You're still continuously under the wrath of God. And you need to be made a new man. Realizing that you brought that wrath upon yourself through your sin, through your unbelief. Because unbelief also witness of a bad conscience, friends. The verdict is that the reason why men oppose Christ is their love of sin. If you want to trace it all home, you find that love for sin breeds hate for Christ. That people hate the Word of God. People hate His true people. They don't see because they don't want to see. That's what Jesus says. They don't want the uneasy spotlight on their sin. They put out the light of the gospel because they don't want to be reproved by it. Friends, we are all accountable before God for every single truth that we heard. Especially this morning. Your failure to believe and receive will cost you eternal damnation. And so Jesus, just like Nicodemus, has to wake you up. That's where Repentance from the works of darkness fits in. That you remain in unbelief because of your wickedness hinders you from coming to Christ. Whatever it is. We cannot justify it. We cannot rationalize it. We cannot act like it didn't happen. Then you come and pretend to love Him when your deed prove you hate Him. Friend, unless you repent, God's wrath still remains over you. You must be born again. And so, I want to conclude now. This, friends, is the mountain peak of the Gospel of John. 
John 3 is the mountain peak for us. We have a revolutionary message that conversion must be personal. Conversion must be personal. It must be drastic. It must be tangible. And yet you cannot control it. That conversion ultimately is a sovereign work of God. That is spiritual. That you cannot reason yourself to it. But it's meant for all of us to be face to face with this. Whether you're converted or not. The unique reminder of what conversion is. So that even in the way we talk to other people about this. We do so in a more effective way. We can know the Bible through and through. We cannot have attended and even joined a church for decades, but you, act, you can even grow up memorizing Bible verses, friends. But unless the Holy Spirit brings this change, all remain in vain. You see that? All remain in vain. Even with all your learning and reasoning and pedigree, personal efforts, you remain dead, spiritually, blind, puzzled. You need to be made new spiritually resurrected so come out of that dark blindness and embrace the light of Jesus realizing that if that happens it doesn't depend on your will but on God's will you hear the gospel you look at the sun was lifted up and the cross plain for everyone in every corners of this earth to see it and to receive the forgiveness that comes through that cross. Through that Jesus who came from God and went back to God. And he revealed for us the love of God. The Father at the cross. That's where salvation happens. You look to Jesus. And he heals you from the deadly bite of sin. Now it's yours for the taking. What would you do with what you heard this morning? Will determine your eternity. This is the most important message that you could ever hear. You either confess your sin and come to the light. You welcome the spirit work of conviction and repentance and faith. And you plead to the Lord to do so. To send the spirit. To trust in the one who died on the tree. To satisfy the wrath of God on your behalf. So that all your sins may be completely forgiven. Or you reject. You remain puzzled. You remain in unbelief. You stay in the middle pretending to agree while you seek to make sense on your own reasoning. That will not help. To mentally agree with me does not matter, friends. Faith is what I'm saying as you go to God. Pray this. Spirit. Holy Spirit, come to me. Enlighten my darkness. Father, Show me your love. Show it and help me to experience your love. Son of God, help me to see that that cross is for me. Let us pray.